And I hope you realize this morning that his mercy is more, more than you can exceed, more gracious and forgiving. If you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 6. We're starting chapter 6, looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. And we're going to see a, a sad story here, but it's a very good story in terms of demonstrating to us how disbelief turns to dishonor, which turns to deprivation. I like dominoes, but I don't like the game. I like to set them up, tap one, watch them fall. You go out there on YouTube, you can find all kinds of videos of some very elaborate domino toppling. Um, but that's kind of what happens in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. He came there. And their skepticism was like dominoes falling. We use that term a lot of times in a negative way. The dominoes start to fall. That's what's going to happen. See, their, their skepticism is going to lead to no salvation, kind of in a domino effect. And Mark shows with us in his account of Jesus' ministry, he shows constantly the pure divinity and humanity of Jesus combined. And we're going to see a little bit of that today, has his divinity and his humanity combined. And Jesus came home to his hometown to teach and preach, just like he'd been doing throughout all of Galilee. I mean, most of us start at home, and we, maybe we branch out a little bit, and we come back home, and we do something else, and we come back home. Jesus had been all over Galilee, and now he returns home to preach to them. And let's read what happens. So he left there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things? They said, what is this wisdom that has been given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and his household. He was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. Let's pray. Jesus, we see such blindness in this town, your hometown, at this time. And we, we want this morning for you to realize and reveal to us if there's any blindness in us. Help us to see deep into our own souls that we may confess and repent and change our own skepticism and disbelief. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so the textual idea of this is that the people of Nazareth, they refuse to listen to Jesus. They refuse to listen to his message, and though, therefore, they lead, it leads to dishonoring Jesus, and they wind up being deprived, deprived of truth, of salvation, of miracles. So the idea of the sermon this morning kind of is that when the message of Christ is rejected, when it's rejected, regardless of the reasons, souls remain in danger of eternal judgment. That's what happens when the message of Jesus Christ is rejected. So what drives an entire town that knew him to reject all of his truth? 
I mean, why would anybody turn down the gospel, we ask ourselves. Well, we're going to see three steps this morning toward rejecting a truth. These are typical, even in humanity today. And resentment really starts the process. So the first step is that cynicism produces disbelief. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Cynicism produces disbelief. He left there and he came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. Not in a good way. Where did this man get these things? They said, what is this wisdom that has been given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? Well, we can ask those questions and, and we, we're maybe genuinely seeking for answers, but they were not. <laughs> they were seeking to question Jesus. So Jesus, let's get the story where we are. Jesus leaves Capernaum where he's just healed a woman who's bled for 12 years and raised a daughter who was 12 years old. He leaves that town and he goes home, which is about a 30-mile trip southwest of Capernaum. It's away from the Sea of Galilee. His little town of Nazareth was probably a town of about 400 people at that time. Now it's a town of about 70,000. It's a big town now. Of course, I think Jesus made it famous, put it on the map. See, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but that wasn't his hometown. His mom and daddy were from, or Joseph and Mary were from Nazareth. And that's where he was raised after he fled to Egypt. And you can go to Luke and Matthew and get all the details of, of all the traveling Jesus did as a young child. But, so he, dry, he arrives in his hometown, this time with his disciples in tow. Now he's got all 12 of his disciples with him. I think he was here before. In Luke chapter 4, there's an account of Jesus being in Nazareth. Some people think these are the same accounts, but there's a lot of differences there, I think. And one of the main differences, he did not have his disciples with him. So he shows up, I think, again for the second time. Now, Jesus was a very model child. And if you look in Luke chapter 2, you'll see he was a model child. Everybody respected Jesus as a child. He wasn't a crazy kid running around, of course, because he was a sinless son of God. But, but now he's not so beloved. He's not so beloved. Jesus, so Jesus honors the Sabbath. The Sabbath comes and he attends the synagogue to worship in Nazareth. And he's asked to speak. And as a rabbi, or what they called a rabbi, that's an honorable thing. It's a traditional thing. But now he's got disciples. Oh, man, he must be somebody. So he's asked to speak. And, 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 and we'll look at in a minute what, what happened the first time he was here. But, but his teaching, once again, like in Luke chapter 4, was met with some serious, serious cynicism. They did not see his credentials as valid. He'd had no formal training. He'd not been to rabbinical school. He had not been to seminary. He had not been ordained or anything by any formal organization that they reference. Well, that's because they didn't know. That was their perspective. But their questions really had easy answers. I mean, you could answer these questions, right? Where does this guy get these things from? God. How does he, how, how does he have this wisdom? God. How can he do miracles? God. So he either is a man of God, or he is the son of God, or he is God, which we like the latter answer primarily. Only God can do these things that they're asking. But, you know, cynicism, if you've ever met anybody who's a cynic, who's skeptical, cynicism and resentment and hard-heartedness, they don't care about answers to their questions, especially serious questions. They, don't wanna, they just want to criticize. They just want to push away. So they chose disbelief, not unbelief. I think unbelief is when you hear the message and you actually listen to it and consider it, but then you decide not to believe it. Disbelief is you don't even care about the message. You don't even want to hear it. 
And that's where I think the people of Nazareth were right now. I mean, think about it. All of Palestine, and especially Galilee, the northern section of Palestine, have, they're excited. There's a prophet. They hadn't had a prophet in 400 years. John the Baptist shows up. He gets arrested. He's off the, off the market. But here's Jesus. Everybody's excited about this. Good ways and bad ways, but they're all excited. And Nazareth is like, eh, we don't care. He's one of us. We don't care. We're going to talk about that in a minute too. But they discounted Jesus and his message from the very start. They didn't even give him the time of day in terms of listening to him. He couldn't be the Messiah. He couldn't be from God. He's one of us. He's too common. So once again, Mark is kind of showing us that until people listen to the message of Jesus Christ, miracles don't matter. They knew about the miracles. They probably knew about the ones that had just happened in Capernaum. Raising a little girl from the dead is going to get out and around. And they were not impressed. And that's what I'm saying is Mark is always showing us that. They know of his miracles and they reject them because they're not believing the message of Jesus Christ first. You've got to have that little bit of faith in what he's saying before miracles make any impression on you. They assume, their assumed familiarity with Jesus kind of creates this skepticism. They know who Jesus is. They know where he's from, blah, blah, blah. They're they're not pleasantly amazed, okay, like everybody else has been. They're like, wow, this is great. They're really, they're cynically astounded. They really aren't happy about this. You know, we all may have family that we've prayed for to come to Christ in some portion of our lives, and maybe they did. But do you remember the first time you maybe talked to them about Jesus and how they reacted? They were probably pretty cynical, and they probably weren't listening to you. Sometimes, because maybe because of your past and maybe what you've done, or maybe you were just too pushy. It's okay. Sometimes it happens. Well, that's the kind of the way Nazareth is treating him. They're like, you're not anybody we're going to listen to. They never allowed even their minds to consider that what Jesus was saying was true. Their hearts were very dark. Let me read you the reaction they had the first time Jesus was there in Luke chapter 4. I'm not going to read the whole chapter or the whole account, but in verses 28 through 30, here's what they did after Jesus read some scripture, told them he was the Messiah, and, and tried to teach them. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down a cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. So I'm like, okay, so you guys tried to kill Jesus, and I've been to what they think was might be the hill that they were going to throw him off of, but it's a long way from the town, and we're not, not close. Like, this seems to be really close to the synagogue. But they were going to throw him off, and he just walked back through them like he wasn't even there. That, that should convince some of us, right? How did he do that? Uh, he's a magician. He's an illusionist. They were skeptical. How can they disbelieve that? Cynicism. That's all it is. Those outside the kingdom are obviously cynical, but those inside can be cynical too, okay? We're just as guilty of some of that cynicism. I mean, think about it. How many times has Jesus helped us? Yet we question sometimes his love. We question how deep it is. We question how thorough his help is. We even question his provisions for us. We maybe think they're not enough or they're not exactly what we wanted. Our ingratitude toward Christ is a form of cynicism. It is. 
It's a form of cynicism. We are skeptical of the joy he promises sometimes. We're like, I don't want to do that because it's not going to make me happy. Well, happiness is not what you're pursuing. Joy is what you're pursuing. We're slow sometimes to trust him with every problem. I can handle this, Jesus. We tell, we tell him. I'm guilty of this, okay? This, this is me talking to me as much as it is to you. We criticize his help because it may not be what we wanted. We have a plan, Jesus. Can you help me execute this plan? Nope, you're going that way. I'm going this way. We, we're skeptical when we do that kind of stuff. We're being cynics as well. We're not trusting him. And skeptical faith is no faith at all. Now, it's good to be inquisitive. It's good to dig deeper in the Word of God. It's good to investigate. But don't be cynical about it. Don't be skeptical about it. I heard a story of a guy one time that he was being witnessed to by this pastor, and the pastor was constantly witness to him. And every time he would witness to him, the guy would say, who was Cain's wife in the, in the Old Testament, in Genesis? Who did Cain marry? And he was trying to imply that Cain probably married his sister, but he wanted the pastor to answer. The pastor says, I really don't know. I'm not going to try to answer that. I don't know. And years went by, years went by, and finally God got a hold of his heart, changed him, he got saved. And so the pastor said, who married, who didn't Cain marry? And he goes, it doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter. All those skeptical questions don't matter. It's good to investigate, but it's not good to be skeptical. The result will be hell if we don't change. If our faith doesn't find root in Jesus Christ. Because our faith is not blind, like some people want to accuse us of being having a blind faith. It's based on truth. The evidence of truth in Jesus Christ is what, we, what our faith is defined off of. That's the real hope we have that's in Christ. So stop allowing cynicism to ruin your faith, whether you're in the kingdom or out of the kingdom right now. And, and re- realize Jesus is who he says he is, according to the Bible. Believe that. Okay, so back to the story. Their cynicism resulted from not knowing whose son Jesus really was. They, they had him as Joseph's adopted son, which we're going to get into, but they didn't realize he was the son of God. And their pride completely blinded them. Arrogance brings dishonor. Point number two, arrogance brings dishonor. Look at verses three and four. They go be, from questioning to dissing Jesus. Isn't this the carpenter? the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and his household. Okay, so now we're finding a little bit more of the source of their cynicism, the source of their disbelief right here. Their source of cynicism is Jesus' family history. <laughs> a carpenter. Well, that's actually a pretty good profession, but actually he, it, the term really means a craftsman, so he could build things. Joseph could build things, and so Jesus learned it. But he's a manual laborer. He's a common man. That's the way they saw him. And for 30 years, that's the way he came across to them before he started his ministry. So they're trying to denigrate and put down his career. He's like one of us, blah, blah, blah. But then they use a very derogatory term in terms of Jewish culture. He isn't this the son of Mary? We think, well, yes, it is, because we know the truth. But they're putting him down. Jewish men were never referred to as the son of their mother. They were always referred to as the son of their father. Even if their father was dead, which they believe most, most people believe Joseph had passed away by this point. 
So even his earthly father was gone, he would be referred to as, well, isn't this the son of Joseph and Mary or whatever? But they don't use just Mary. So they're, they're putting Jesus down. But you know what? This son of Mary thing conveys even more about what's going on in their hearts and their minds. This is the illegitimate son of Mary. The illegitimate son of Mary. The story goes, well, 30 years ago or so, Mary showed up after visiting her cousin Elizabeth, and she was pregnant. And so Joseph decided to take her away, and they went away to hide her pregnancy. I mean, that's kind of, I mean, that story is well rehearsed, even in our day. She, he, they see Jesus as the illegitimate son, conceived out of wedlock, and that Joseph really kind of adopted this impure or adulterated son. So they return years later. I mean, Jesus was a young child when they came back to Nazareth. So now they're asking this question, really, who does Jesus think he is? <laughs> That's really, who do he, and they got an arrogant attitude about it because they think they know. Their assumptions are, are based on the past, and it led to, to arrogant and wrong attitudes about his present. They thought, well, because they know him and his family, they were offended by, they were offended by his authority and his message and his signs because they thought they knew his past. And so Jesus kind of generalizes their dishonor right here, and he quotes an idiom of the day. Dishonor comes to a prophet from family and relatives, basically is what Jesus is saying. And it's not quoting necessarily an Old Testament verse. There was one verse in Jeremiah 12 that kind of sounded that way in, in a judgment that God was pronouncing, but, but it's, it's an idiom that's well-known and well-used uh, in New Testament times. And so the past crimes corrupt the present realities, I mean, that's what happens to us. Sometimes we may have gotten saved and we got changed and we come back to, to visit and people are like, well, what you did in the past? Mm-hmm, I know what you did. But Jesus doesn't have that problem, see? Jesus was a perfect kid. He didn't pull any girl's pigtails. You know, he didn't lie to his mom and dad. He didn't play hooky from school. He didn't do any of that. He had no faults. He had no weaknesses. But they disliked him because he was from their place. And they thought they knew him. Their pride prevented them from discovering who Jesus of Nazareth is. And they dishonored more than a prophet, really. They dishonored and sullied the Son of God. That's a serious thing to do. You know, some people just want to think they're right and, and win the argument. But regardless of the harm they think they're causing or may be causing, but they were wrong here. Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. These foolish Nazarenes weren't willing to listen to what really had happened. And they weren't willing to believe the miracles validated Christ's ministry. So I hope you can see from that story, that, that part of the story, that rumors, speculation, gossip can ruin the truth and ruin righteousness. I mean, they really never investigated what Jesus' past had done. Now, our family and friends, when they find out that we became Christians, especially if you became Christians later in life, our family and friends from the past, they might be a little skeptical. Sure, he's saved. Sure, he's God-fearing now. Sure, he's a churchgoer. They, they're really, really skeptical. But, 
you know, they might seem to hold our past against us, but I know one way to cure that. Go apologize for your past. Go to them and apologize. Apologize for what you did, what you made them believe or think. I had to do that recently with a cousin because I hung out with him in high school and did some crazy and terrible bad things. And I had to just tell him, you know, hey, I'm sorry if I misled you. And, of course, he knows now I'm a pastor, and it's like he needs to know that I, I'm, I'm sorry for that and if it inflicted any harm on him. I didn't get a response, but I apologized. But Jesus didn't have to do this, see, like we said before. He's perfect. He didn't have to, he didn't have to solve their resentment problems and their dishonoring and their, their questions. He really didn't. So there's two applications in this for us. First, our reactions to people who reject the gospel. When we share the gospel and people react negatively or resentful or, or with arrogant attitudes, we don't need to retaliate the same way. We need to, re we need to react with love and prayer, definitely, and being good to them. Don't, don't press them to the point that you aggravate them. Just be good. Pray for them. Once you've shared, let God take care of the seed, okay? It's not your job to make it germinate. Always try to leave the door open. That's the way I would approach it is, you know, they may resist and it's like, okay, we won't talk about that again, but we can still be friends. We can still be family and just keep praying. My uncle's funeral that I went to on Monday, I have been praying for him since 1982 and witnessing to him off and on. And the testimony of the pastor of the church that he was attending said that he, he believes he was saved. I would have never known whether that worked or not, whether he was or not, until I went to that graveside. So praise the Lord. Keep praying. You never know. The second application this morning is that if you are rejecting Jesus' message and the truth of it, ask yourself why. Why? Is it because you can't believe yet? That might be valid. Or are you angry or frustrated with someone who pushed too much about the gospel, who tried to make you a Christian by just arguing with you constantly? Really, both are not good reasons because both of them leads to hell if you don't ever believe. So let go of the disbelief you have or the frustration you may have and trust Jesus Christ for eternal life. That's all Jesus is calling his hometown to do. And let me tell you, you won't regret it. No one's going to make you eat crow. Just admit it and believe it. So... Nazareth's arrogant rejection, it disrespected Jesus. And their unbelief at this point, their disbelief, their unbelief, their refusal deprived them of miracles, but also redemption. Point number three, unbelief leaves souls deprived. Verses five and six, unbelief leaves souls deprived. Look what happens. He was not able to do a miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. Jesus really could do miracles there because they don't have that kind of power. But he wouldn't do miracles there. And we already know the reason why. Like we said before, Mark strenuously emphasizes constantly, if you don't listen to the message of Jesus Christ, you won't see the miracles for what they are. And you won't see any miracles in, at times. Faith in the message is a prerequisite for the miracles, whatever they may be. They refused his truth, so he would not do any miracles of significance. But I'm telling you, those people that got healed probably thought it was pretty significant. He laid his hand on a few people. They got healed. That's pretty significant to me. That would be significant to me. But I want you to see in that little act right there the mercy 
in the grace of God and Jesus Christ. That even their rejection, even their disrespect, their disbelief, their arrogance and their cynicism, he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. Wow. I mean, he didn't have to do that. Jesus may have planted some little bit of truth in those people right there that changed their life in time by that little bit of healing. But that's mercy. That's mercy. And that's our Father. Now we read something in this passage in verse 6 that's only occurs two times in the New Testament. Jesus was amazed. This time in a negative way. The second time is in Luke, and it's, he's amazed at the faith of the centurion. But that's another story as well. Jesus was amazed. He was really astounded and stupefied by their unbelief, by their faithlessness. Remember, he has passed through them off the edge of the cliff. That didn't make a difference. He teaches them truth. They know about the miracles that he's been doing all over Galilee, and they still don't believe. He's amazed. So there's a little bit of humanity in Jesus. I mean, of course, he's God. He knew they wouldn't believe, but... His humanity is a little bit puzzled. And he's looking at them like he looked at the Pharisees when he healed the guy with the withered hand on a Sabbath. He was frustrated. He was probably a little angry and tired of this. And he was puzzled by how they couldn't believe. So Jesus left Nazareth forever. Never went back. He, let the, he left the seeds that he planted there or scattered there somewhere on the path some were in the thorns, some were on the rocks. Maybe some of them landed where they're supposed to. But he left the village forever and went to other villages to preach the truth because the message will continue no matter what. Their absolute rejecting unbelief deprived them of salvation, of miracles, of seeing the Son of God in their hometown. It is amazing. You know, we, we wonder why sometimes Jesus doesn't do miracles to show himself. But that's not the way the message, and that's not the way. It's, it's kind of like giving your kids dessert so they'll eat their vegetables. You know, I mean, I, have you ever tried that? We tried it once. It didn't work. <laughs> they weren't hungry after dessert. They didn't want it. If you deprive them of dessert, dessert maybe they'll eat their vegetables. Maybe they'll get the good stuff. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's like, you've got to believe what I'm saying because that's what makes a difference, not my miracles. This type of rejection has been God's ordeal with humanity forever. And God condemns this. Listen to Jeremiah 32, 33. I mean, this almost sounds like God's like, at Nazareth when this happens. Of course, he is because he's the son of God's there. But they have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. Sounds like Nazareth. And that's in Jeremiah. That's written centuries before. And we read this whole story and we go, how could they reject him? But the truth is, we reject Christ every time we disobey. We're kind of rejecting him. We're saying, your, your plan is not good enough for us. We've got to go our own way. We deprive our souls of joy and revelation and peace each time we choose to disobey. Even as believers, we still choose to defy our calling to follow Christ. We still kind of hold back a little bit. We still kind of just, no, I don't want to give that up yet. And we deprive ourselves of joy and peace. 
in lives that are lived in, in pure holiness. James's brother wrote, don't just listen to the word, but do what it says. Do not merely listen to the words of Jesus with no intent to do them. Do what it says. James 1.22. I mean, right now you have God's mercy and grace that you're experiencing because you're right here, right now, hearing this message that God has given us. And even in your rejection and your disobedience, God still will speak to you. And he allows you to hear this message today. The question is, are you listening? Are you listening? Are you believing it? Jesus Christ can be your Savior today. He can. Right now. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe. That's the call. So let me summarize this a little bit. Nazareth. Their disbelief led to a completely dishonoring situation that eventually they were deprived of hearing the gospel message and receiving it and seeing any miracles done to validate it. I hope you're not from Nazareth today. Now, you remember a while ago we sang that song, His Mercy is More. Well, let's go back through the second verse again because I think that describes what this sermon and what this passage is trying to tell us. What patience would wait... As we constantly roam, what father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Don't let that mercy pass you by. Don't be cynical about it. Take the joy and the comfort that forgiveness offers. If you're a believer, live like you're sold out for Christ. Uncynical and true. True believer of Jesus. And I'm telling you, blessings will flow. And if you are not following Christ, if you are not a follower and believer in Jesus Christ, you're probably looking for some grace and mercy at times in your life. And you may think, I need forgiveness. Well, Jesus has the solution. Faith in Jesus Christ means saying or believing in your heart with, that, with conviction that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection from the grave saves your soul, provides forgiveness from God Almighty, His Father. And you believe that without any reservations, without any cynicism, skepticism, doubts. You believe that He can pay your death sentence. You repent, turn away from the things that you've been hanging on to to get you to heaven, and trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this story, and I thank you for the truth it provides. I thank you for how it shows us your humanity, Jesus, as well as your divinity. I appreciate your mercy and patience with the town of Nazareth because I know you have that same mercy and patience and kindness with my soul. And I praise you for that and thank you for that. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing about taking the name of Jesus with us.